From the Spyscape Podcast Network, this is The Spying Game. Over this season of The Spying Game, Rory Bremner will be joined by a mix of experts in the field of deception and fellow enthusiasts from the world of entertainment as they attempt to sort the Moscow rules from the Hollywood fabrication. Hello and welcome to The Spying Game. I'm Rory Bremner, comedian, mimic, spy enthusiast and professional liar. Like most people, I've grown up reading spy stories, watching spy stories, and pretending to be things I'm not. But in reality, I've got no idea how much of what I know is fact and what is fiction. Each week on the show, we'll be tackling topics including double agents, disguise, outfoxing the enemy, and betrayal. But this week on The Spying Game, it's... The Bodyguard. How to protect the lives that matter most. The number one thing to being a good reader is to stop thinking about yourself and really look at the human being across from you. And they're going to show you everything. And that's how you figure out motives, values, what they think, what they feel. And the best part, the number one thing I tell people is shut up and let people talk. I didn't know the tower was going to fall. Who would have thought that, you know, back then? But like when you're in it and you see your fellow human beings dying, how can you leave? Did you send the first episode of Line of Duty to the Met? Yeah, that didn't go well. Because in, in the opening sequence, an innocent man is, is, is shot in a counter-terrorism operation, they were saying that was not something that they would do. I don't want to rely on anybody to take care of me. I take care of me. I guess rather than going in being like, oh, I'm the only woman, I was like, yeah, I'm the only woman. Now, if you conjure up an image of a secret agent, you're likely to think of Ethan Hunt, George Smiley, or James Bond. Whether up on the big screen or in literature, Y chromosomes are definitely in the majority. But whilst historically that may have been true, today we're joined by one of the women who helped shatter that glass ceiling. Evie Pompouris, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Evie, your story is so extraordinary that if Jed Mercurio wrote it, we might struggle to give it credence. You're the daughter of Greek immigrants, grew up in a prime-ridden area of New York. You became an NYPD cop before taking on the Secret Service, found yourself caught up in the 9-11 terror attacks, and that's before we even mentioned protecting four serving US presidents. Where did the secret agent life start for you? I mean, Growing up as a child, did it feature as one of your ambitions? No, I mean, as a child, I never thought about it. It was really not a world that I knew of or other than when I would watch TV shows. I never envisioned that there was a place for me in the world like that. But I think the one key thing for me was that we grew up in a rough area. We grew up with a lot of crime. We grew up not poor, but not great. And I remember seeing this void of protection. And rather than getting more fearful, I would get more emboldened. I need to protect myself. I need to protect my family. My parents would say, you should have been born a boy. (laughs) How did you come out a girl? Because, you know, I'd be like, let's go get that person. And I chase people down. I was always very kind of like protective. And I think naturally my mindset was, you know what? I could be a cop. I could be a New York City police detective. Why not? Mm -hmm. I don't want to rely on anybody to take care of me. I take care of me. I never thought for a moment I couldn't do it. Although maybe the people around you look at you and tell you and they kind of think like, this isn't a great idea. I started with the police academy and it was from there where the seed of, hey, I could do more came up and then I started looking at different agencies and U.S. Secret Service was one of them. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to apply. Let them tell me no. And thankfully they didn't. But then you find yourself in this world, which is still back then pretty male dominated. How was it breaking into that? I didn't care. 
I was like, what are the requirements? I can do that. I can do that. I also grew up with, um, I'm Greek. My parents are Greeks, so they're very nationalistic. So I had a dad who was like, the ancient Greeks did this, and the ancient Greeks did that, Achilles, <laughs> the Spartans. And I was just like, yeah, I'm like those guys. And so I always saw myself in that way. And I think what matters is how we see ourselves. And so because I didn't see myself as a woman, I was just like, I'm going to go in. I seized the opportunity, though. I didn't go in like, oh, I'm going to figure it out. I was like, no, you get one shot, and you really do. And after that, it's like, there's the door. I guess rather than going in being like, oh, I'm the only woman, I was like, yeah, I'm the only woman. Good for me. <laughs> and so I think if you take it from that mindset, you see it differently. Joining us on this edition of The Spying Game, someone to whom the secret world of bodyguards and police work is meat and drink. Writer, producer and TV executive Jed Mercurio. 12 million watching Line of Duty, even more watching Bodyguard, the most watched crime dramas in British TV history. And when you're not writing, you're exec producing other series like Bloodlands. But this is your third career. You were a medic, trained as an RAF pilot. Where did it all go wrong or, or right? <laughs> well, I think probably my career path is due to critical failures at particular times. I was just very fortunate to get opportunities to move from one career to another. So I started off in med school and then I discovered aviation medicine and joined the Air Force and the Cold War ended and there were defense cutbacks and I was back into a medical career in hospitals. And then I got an opportunity to advise on a TV show and then they kind of asked me to get involved in the writing. So I was incredibly fortunate that these doors opened after one had closed, and I've had a very fortunate career path ever since. So we've got with us a former Secret Service operative. You must have met a few of these people when you've been researching your dramas. Are they good sources of information? Oh, I think people like Evie are brilliant at controlling how much they tell you and how much they <laughs> hold back. I, I really wouldn't want to attempt to interrogate someone like that if, if I really need to get information out of them. But we're incredibly fortunate to be able to have the benefit of technical advisors. In my shows, authenticity is hugely important. I want to get everything as accurate as possible. I'm not claiming that I do. I know that sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes that's intentional. We use artistic license. I tend to use multiple advisors. So on Bodyguard, we had police advisors and then we had two advisors who were involved in the protection command of the Metropolitan Police. You add all those together and you hope to get a picture that at least represents a realistic version of what goes on in the real world. But real life is real life and, and TV is TV. They're not the same thing. You know, it's interesting because I studied the arts. Graduating from an acting school, I love the arts. I use my acting stuff actually in undercover stuff. And then now in working in TV and media, you want to make it re as real as possible. But sometimes real is not great for television or real can be dry. Because although there is action in the job, but there's also elements where you're very still, it's very quiet, and you have to stay alert. And so there's part of the, the job that people don't see that's actually quite difficult to be able to stay that focused and not be in movement. What is it, do you think, that attracts people to this world of secret agents? You get trained on a level that's different than anything else in the world. Mm -hmm. And the people that apply for these types of jobs are people who actually believe that they've, they can do it. There's, it's called a self-editing mm -hmm. process. So if you have any kind of like, I'm not sure, I don't know, like those people don't apply. You have to have the nerve or the audacity to be mm -hmm. like, I can do that. Then after that, you go through training. The person that's doing it for something greater than themselves, those were the ones who would make it because they're doing it for something bigger than who they are. 
So that's the motivation for going into the training. Jed, what attracts you and what attracts people to this world of spies and bodyguards? There's a difference between dramatising the world and what the real world is. The real world is as Evie described. It's about people who have a certain set of values about serving society and how they have ideals about justice and doing a good job. And that's useful in a drama, but it's not necessarily what attracts people to watch. That is all about the highlights, the thrills, all those moments that occur, fortunately, very rarely, but they're what we associate with those professions. So it's the moments of high jeopardy. The job generally is obviously going to be very different from what's portrayed in sort of an action thriller. So as a dramatist, you're offering that to the audience. But if you take your job seriously, what you do want to do is is drill into what is the exact nature of the job? What are the ideals and values of the people who do that? And move forward with those templates in place when you're trying to design a story that will draw an audience in and then carry them through what happens to the character and what happens to the characters they're trying to protect. The drama tends to happen, doesn't it, when, when things go wrong, as you said, and it's not just about the external conflict, the things that's going wrong, but you've got a human with all their failings inside an institution. That's where you find the gold, isn't it? It is, yeah. And and again, what it means is you're you're probably telling a story that's not wholly representative. So, for example, in Bodyguard, the protagonist had a bunch of psychological problems that you know we're sympathetic to of course people who who've served in war zones can end up with PTSD and they should be treated with sympathy and given help but they also probably shouldn't be in that job until they've received that help and this particular character hides that away the other thing is that there's an unprofessional relationship which develops between him and the person that that he's protecting which again is something that happens rarely and is not representative of the values of nearly all the people who do that job. However, it does happen in the real world. And if there weren't real world examples of it, then we wouldn't have done it in Bodyguard. And for, for the British audience, they're probably aware of the fact that there was a relationship between a, a police protection officer and the wife of the Home Secretary. And also there was a relationship between a protection officer and Princess Anne in the 70s. So these are things that do happen, but rarely. And, and that's where drama comes along and, and borrows those things and, and blows them out of all proportion. David Budd, the character that the bodyguard with a psychological problem, is that something that would be found out pretty quickly in the Secret Service? You know, I think they try to be as empathetic as possible to people in situations, but because that you're dealing with life and death, you're wielding a weapon, you have the power to take life, and you're not just protecting life, you're taking life. And in the United States, the Secret Service also does criminal investigations. We would do both. And I would do interviews and interrogations. So you have to make sure that who you bring in is of sound mental mind and body. If you have those issues, they, they do dig deep. They do look at medical records and, you know, they need to make sure that you're not just physically fit, but that you're mentally fit to do the job because you impact other people's lives. And is that an ongoing assessment? For example, if there's somebody's going through a marriage breakup or whatever, is, is there a constant assessment going on in the background? Once you get in, every few years they do an, a new background check on you. So every like couple of years they do a whole new check on you. But at least my organization, where I came from, it was so tight. I mean, everybody knew everybody. I mean, that was your family. I spent more time with them than with my own family. And so if there was something wrong, people knew. 
you could see who's got an issue. Mm -hmm. And even as an agent, whenever we do a search warrant or an arrest warrant, you'd pick your team. We used to say, that's a guy or that's a gal I want to go through a door with. And what that would mean is that person would protect me. Because sometimes in these really stressful situations, as much training as you have, there's always that person you know that's got you no matter what. And then there's one person that you may be kind of worried about. Are they going to be there? Are they going to flee? Are they going to leave me? You want to make sure you have strong people and mentally sound people and very brave people. You brought up bravery there. You're certainly the only person on this podcast to have a Medal of Valor. And that came about from your experiences on 9-11. You were right in the middle of that, weren't you? Were you actually working in the World Trade Center when it happened? U.S. Secret Service offices were in the World Trade Center. So on that day, I happened to go to work like everybody else. My offices happened to be where they were. I also just happened to be a person who decided I'm not evacuating. Like, I have a badge and a gun. Where am I going to go? First plane hit. You don't know. I didn't even know it was a plane. I didn't know what was happening. I knew there was explosion and fire. So you, you go to the problem. Then the second plane comes and you realize, all right, we're under attack. Well, I'm not going anywhere. And you stay to help, evacuate people, pull people out, do what you need to do. And nobody knew. I didn't know the tower was going to fall. Who would have thought that? But for me, I guess, I don't know if it was bravery. I feel like it was humanity. Like when you're in it and you see your fellow human beings dying, I, how can you leave? And I think that was for me, I knew the consequences of me leaving. And I think for me, it was worse to leave than to stay. I'd have a harder time reconciling who I was as a human being. And so I think because I stayed, I sleep soundly at night. So it was both a human instinct and a professional instinct to go back in, to run towards where the trouble was. I think it was more human instinct than professional because there was other people who left. A lot of people did leave the area because they were evacuating. They didn't understand what was happening. It was a lot of, it was very chaotic. You see it now on the news and it's like, this happened, this happened, this happened. In that moment, like there was somebody who was telling us we're being attacked with missiles. Like we had no idea what was going on. So it's just your ability to make a choice and say, I'm going to stay and I'm going to do what I can. And some people did leave. And how were you in, in that moment? Were you in, in, in fear of your life or did a sort of calm kick in? I think training really kicks in. Yes. And I was kind of focused. I was like, people are dying. I'm not going anywhere. You know, it's like, this is the moment. This is the moment where you step up and is people bleeding. People are dying. People need to be pulled out. People need to be evacuated. We set up a triage. Let's figure out what's going on. And this is where maybe that person who did it for themselves wouldn't stick around. And the person that's doing it for something greater sticks around. We help people. We help put people in ambulances who needed help. Some people weren't responding well. We were just trying to get push people out of the area. And when the towers collapsed, the first tower collapsed essentially on top of the triage I was at. That was the one moment where I was like, I'm going to die. And I think after that moment in surviving it, after that, everything was a piece of cake. You put on your bulletproof vest or with the president, you're like, ah, if I die, you know, I'm going to wake up in Big Mac heaven. I'm going to see a sea of Big Mac. That's my weakness <laughs> in life. So, but you have to have that dark humor to make it. You have to have that like, well, today could be my last. I'm going to live it up. In your book, you talk about finding a wall, sheltering there, finding is it a heavy metal table? Because you thought the great risk to me now is from above. If I'm underneath the metal table, I'll get out. I can breathe. All these things to be thinking that quickly. Oh, when they say time slows down, it slowed down. Like it was, I watch it on TV now and I don't watch it a lot, but I'll watch it. I'm like, that happened fast. But in that moment, when it started, when I started hearing the creaking of the metal and I was like, something's going on and I didn't know it was going to collapse. I was like, maybe the roof is sliding off. I remember the plane hit up top high. Maybe it's bending. Parts of the building structurally were, were breaking off during the explosion, the fire. They were, they were consistently kind of, there was metal coming down. So I just thought 
hey, maybe there's a bigger piece of metal that's about to break off and collapse and come down. But then when that started to happen, it just went slow motion, legit like a movie. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be buried. What do I need? I need water. And there was water nearby. And I had time to go run, get water. Oh, well, if this thing doesn't crush me, glass kills. They teach you in training. So I'm like, all right, I need to shelter myself from the glass. And I dragged one of those outdoor, huge metal heavy tables. And it was brutally heavy. Probably right now, in my normal state, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But in that heightened adrenaline state, I dragged that thing. I remember scraping it on the concrete. I was like, all right, I have to make myself a small target. That way, if things come down, they can miss you. And so it was just kind of like, boom, 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 boom. What do I need to do? So I didn't have time to be afraid. I was kind of like, go. What do I need to do? And you're just kind of checking these things off. And then after, while you're sitting there and it starts raining down, I had this moment. I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it. You know, I don't think this is going to work out well. And at least for me, that was my true one moment in life where I was kind of like, let me find myself. Let me say my goodbyes in some way and, you know, kind of wait for your transition to wherever it is we go, you know, after something like that happens. And you were awarded the Medal of Valor for your actions that day. Did that sit comfortably with you? No. They did this big ceremony and I wasn't the only one. They selected some other agents and they said, based on your your actions on that day, we want to give you the Valor Award. It's our highest award. You know, gave it to the agent who saved Ronald Reagan's life. I didn't say anything um, because I didn't want to be insensitive to the honor that they were bestowing on me. And, you know, they put this event together and they're like, we'll have this event, you know, family and all that. And uh, I lied. (laughs) You're not the only liar here, Rory. (laughs) I lied. And I said, you know, I actually, because it happened to be summertime, actually, I was like, I have to go visit my family in Greece. Tickets are booked. I'm really sorry. And I went to one of my bosses. I was like, sure, you'll accept it for me on my behalf, won't you? And he's just like, sure. Okay. You don't want to be there. You can't change your tickets. No, sir. Non-refundable. And it's a government job. So you know how it is. No money. So I, I lied. And then that night I booked tickets and I actually went to Greece to visit my grandmother. And I didn't want to go. I couldn't go. I lost people that I knew in the towers. I, I think when you see death on that level, like I saw, I didn't see one or two people die. I saw people dying. Like, I don't know how many people I saw dying. Dozens, maybe a hundred, 200. I don't know how many people were dying. And I think after this, you see something like that, it's like, it's not war. It was something else. I just, I couldn't go get an award. Mm. it's not about it's not about the award is it no it just it felt off you know and but you know plenty of other people went and i think everybody does what they need to do i just think for me i couldn't go jed did you ever consider a drama around 9-11 was that ever a subject that you thought or is it something that you still might return to i think it's an american subject i know that it was a world event but i think that the people who really experienced the tragedy and people who are incredibly close to that and still affected are, are, are almost all Americans. And it, it feels like it, it would probably be insensitive for someone from outside of the US to to, to tell that story. I, I know there have been major terror events over here in the UK. You know, we, we had 7-7, we had Lockerbie, which was kind of a, a transatlantic thing, but it happened in UK airspace so I think I would probably look in in those directions rather than trample on on the specific sensitivities of an American tragedy 
Evie, you've you've gone on to speak and write extensively about your experiences, both in the New York Police Department and as a field agent. Are, are you free to talk about your experiences? Does that lead to any issues with your former colleagues? I do a great deal of filtering. Even the book I handed over to the U.S. Secret Service and I said, here it is. Tell me what I can say. Tell me what I can't say. And they got their red pen out. And I was just like, nope, nope, <laughs> nope, nope. So that we took out quite a bit, but it's understandable because almost like you, Jai, like I transitioned from this field into television and working as a security expert on air and then speaking on air and then kind of leaning towards the arts again, where I naturally kind of wanted to go when I was younger. So I really kind of transitioned from one career to another. I had never had any intention of writing a book and I had been approached to write a book many times, but it was always, can you write about the people you protected? You know, can you tell the stories about them? And I was just like, no, that's not, if you want a book about Mrs. Obama, you go to Mrs. Obama. And even in the book, I did share some stories about the people I protected. And I actually went, like, for example, in chapter 23, I talk about the virtues I learned from each president and um, first lady. And I went to them, the Obamas. I said, hey, this is a story that happens in private. Are you okay if I share it? So I really took that to heart in being mindful of what I share and don't share. Jed, you must depend on the first-hand experience of, of professionals like Evie to capture that sense of realism that makes your dramas so compelling, whether it's doctors in, in cardiac arrest or, or the imperfection of police and line of duty. Are they happy to talk to you? I mean, you mentioned just now about uh, other episodes that were closer to home. Line of duty, was that was the seed for that planted around the time of the 7-7 bombings with the shooting of uh, Jean-Charles de Menezes, the, the, the Brazilian who was an, an innocent man who was shot by counter-terrorists, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I would distinguish between when I've written about medicine, which comes from uh, my own primary experience. And so I've written very specifically about being uh, a, a hospital doctor, you know, as a very junior house officer and senior house officer sort of the equivalent of being an intern or a, or a resident and in terms of policing obviously i i've got no primary experience of that so there are some things which are in the public domain which which i find interesting because you can sort of research them from afar and think well if this particular event has happened how did it happen how did a how did an organization as as usually competent and 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 well-trained as the metropolitan police shoot an innocent man in the aftermath of 7-7 and it tells you things about human error and and the the way in which everybody makes mistakes but what's interesting is how public institutions deal with that some institutions are very good at dealing with mistakes and learn lessons and not only do they look after their own people, but they look after the, the people who've been affected by it. But occasionally you, you get situations where they don't look after the, the truth and they don't look after the people who've been affected by it outside of their organization. And that's something that occasionally I've, I've written about. So when I approach advisors, often they're helping with the technical accuracy the day-to-day -day authenticity that you want to bring it's something very different if say one of those advisors was closely involved with one of these events and and was able to shed light on it or even be a whistleblower on it and that's something that hasn't happened yet um it's something i would be interested in in the future but the the stories in line of duty and, and bodyguard are entirely fictional 
they they have some correlation with events that have happened in the real world but that's only so that they have an element of plausibility so that if someone were to say well that could never ever happen at least as a program maker i can point to examples of things that that were quite similar to those events did you send the first episode of line of duty to, to the met yeah that didn't go well <laughs> because in in the opening sequence an innocent man is 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 shot in a counter-terrorism operation they were disowning that they were saying that was not something that they would do but it's one of those things where as i said different institutions and different individuals deal with that in different ways and there are there are many institutions and many individuals who deal in exactly the right way with situations when things go wrong and just because i'm maybe picking on certain events where the institution didn't handle it well that's a specific deliberate choice in terms of the the drama i want to tell that doesn't mean that's how it always happens and you know we should be very clear that almost invariably there are people who wouldn't do the things that the david budd character does in bodyguard so much of what happens is routine where people are completely in control of the situation people are working as part of a team and they have shared values and and everyone's doing the right thing and where the drama comes in is where those values aren't shared or people are in conflict and and i thought evie made a, a really excellent point earlier on when she was talking about agents with psychological problems that I think that what my own research showed agreed exactly with that which is that the psychological testing of someone who has a temporary problem probably wouldn't pick it up it's not like doing a blood test where you can just see if someone's become anemic but the real strength of those organizations is people looking out for each other and people knowing who they work with and seeing that a colleague maybe needs help seeing that maybe a, a colleague is is making a cry for help in some way and that happens because they're working together day in day out and they're following routines and you get to see that whereas in a drama often things happen so rapidly you know hmm. the guy's on the job and like five minutes later he's in a shootout and it's like <laughs> you know in real life but of course that does happen very very rarely but generally when people join an organization it's a long time before they're in a shootout. Evie, you were talking about the instincts that kicked in on, on 9-11, but what tips can you offer us from your experience in a more mundane situation? There's so many, but Jed, when I was watching Bodyguard, the first episode stood out when you had the main character and he's sitting there on the train and he did not off and then he wakes up and he's watching everything, watching, watching, watching. And that is 100% me. And I was like, man, that's what I do. I cannot turn it off. I get on a plane and I think, okay, if there's a, an attack happens, how am I going to take this person out? I don't have my gum on me anymore, but I'm a civilian. Why well, would come in from behind? And maybe I would pretend this. I literally walk through scenarios everywhere I go. It's just habit. It's because we did it before. It was part of training and I still do it. And even when, you know, my off days when I was an agent and I go to the movies with my friends, I bring my weapon with me here in the U.S., you know, we all carried and I put it in my nice handbag in my purse. And my friends would look at me. Are you bringing your gun to the movies? What is wrong with you? And I'm like, you know, if shit breaks bad, you're all going to be hiding behind me. So, you know what? Let's just pretend eat your popcorn and I've got everything else. You know, there are all those moments where I go out, I go to get coffee and I, I watch everyone and everything around me. It's just you're on all the time and you can't really turn it off. 
Does it annoy you? Do you wish you could turn it off sometimes? No, because I guess if something does happen, I want to have my wits about me. Jed, is it the same for you as a dramatist? Because you know, sometimes if you read a book or you see a film, for a short while after, as you walk out into the street outside and you're, you're looking at people slightly differently. I think I'm fortunate that I can switch it on and off. Would you be good company on a train, for example? Or would you... <laughs> I, th I think, I mean, like Evie said, she can't switch it off because she, she's a highly trained person and that training is, is designed to change the way that you function, make you suited to what you're doing. And I've never really gone through that process. I was in the military, but I was doing a very specific role and and that, that I still have great memories of that. And I learned an enormous amount from it, but it, it, it hasn't changed the way that I relate to the world around me. And yes, of course, if I'm, if I'm seeing an unusual event, I do, want to observe like anyone else and because if you're watching something unusual then then it may have dramatic value it may be something that you can use in later life but what i've found is that generally my primary experience is just absorbed the way it would be for anyone i haven't thought oh that's useful preparation if i ever need to write that scene it's just if in the course of my writing i, I come across a situation that i may have experienced then it helps. And that was particularly true of writing about medicine, you know, that I was a hospital doctor for four years, and I saw a lot of things that members of the public just wouldn't see. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to call upon those things, not just necessarily writing about medicine, but writing about what happens when people are under extreme stress, or when people are in life or death situations, or that they're, they're actually seeing a a loved one in a life or death situation. So those things are, are, are helpful, but it's compartmentalized, I would hope. Evie, you recognized yourself in Jed's bodyguard. Can you watch a drama without critiquing the detail? I can't. But you know what, though? When you live in that world all the time, you want to break. You need reprieve. You want to do see hmm. something very different and do something very different. <laughs> you just do. You just need a break. You can't always be that one thing. Um, and there's parts that are, you know, that you really like. Like the another part, I'll give you another part that I really like, Jed, is the ending where you made Nadia the real villain. And I, I would have, if I could have met you, if I could see you in person, I would hug you. <laughs> because that is something I fought in real life. Because this visualization that as a woman, you're not lethal that you don't have that in you. And I would see sometimes a level of complacency because you have a, you're not being objective. You're not looking at the behavior of a person. You're making an assumption based off of what somebody looks like or a stereotype. And this is something that I would get heat on sometimes. One time, former first lady Michelle Obama went to a school to visit a school in Atlanta. And I was the agent in charge of the school, the security and all that. And these were little kids, maybe five, six years old. And so we have to sweep the area, which is check for bombs, secure everything. And when you do that, you also check people. And they didn't want me to check the kids. And they're like, don't check the kids. I was like, what do you mean I'm not going to check the kids? They're like, a kid's going to bring a bomb. I'm like, I don't know who packed that kid's lunchbox. I don't know who packed that kid's backpack. I'm checking every kid. And I remember pushing and I checked every kid. And it reminded me of that moment. And I dealt with it with women too, where I would see this level of complacency. And I'd be like, you don't know what's going on in that person's mind. Check them. And maybe because I am a woman, because I know what I'm capable of, I would see that. And I love that you put that in that, ca in that character. I was like, yes. Thank you.
you're doing so much for Jed's showreel. This is just, you've got a fan here, Jed, for sure. How important is the detail to, to you? I mean, it gives it obviously the authenticity, but there must come times where the dramatic license comes in and you think, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to bend the sort of protocol here because I need this for the drama. I need this for the character. Actually, I, I try not to. I try to keep things authentic, but I fail. And, and the reason I fail is because I'm not, simulating real life I'm, I'm doing a drama and I, I thought it was really interesting listening to Evie talking about watching thrillers and that the fact that you have to take a particular step if you're in the audience you have to do that thing called suspension of disbelief and it's something that we don't do in real life in in real life we accept the reality around us and therefore we accept that it's entirely possible that a threat can come from a child or, or, or an apparently innocent looking woman. But when you present that in a drama, the audience has to engage with that reality. And some of them choose not to uh, because that's their personality type. And then in other kinds of drama where you're representing the work of an institution or a particular profession, people from that profession find it a little too close to home that what they're seeing represents what they do in real life and they see that it's not quite the same and therefore they're not able to take that voluntary step of, of suspending disbelief. So I, I recognise the limits of authenticity and if I can be 90%, I'm, I'm happy with that. And what I mean by that is if 90% of the audience find what the story and, and the actions are as plausible then that's good because there's all there are always going to be people who will reject the plausibility and that specific example that that Evie raised of Nadia was something that was the plausibility of that was was challenged and that the fact is we're aware of certain agencies and certain organizations that do recruit people because they they appear less threatening and it, it's all part of, of their strategizing to get past the, the defenses of people whose job it is to enforce the law or, or to protect significant people. There's a good example of that detail I was talking about earlier on, ever you mentioned in The Bodyguard. And then this, I think it's the second one of those when for the first time, the protection officer is in the car with the Home Secretary and he tells the driver to take a different route home. And the politician, the protectee, kicks back against that and says, now I want to go home this way. Who has authority in that situation, in, in that part of the relationship? If you've got a somebody who wants to go home one way and the security guard says no, who's in charge? It made me laugh because it would happen all the time. And sometimes it would happen with specific protectees. There's one I'm thinking that was notorious. I was like, agent, don't go this way. Don't take Fifth Avenue, take this way. And it's like, I'm taking this route for a specific reason. Like if I could take a bridge, I wouldn't take underground tunnels. I would avoid underground tunnels at all costs. So there's certain routes I would take for specific reasons because of what's around me. Like it's really well thought out. So in those situations, I'm going the route I want to go. I'm not listening to you. You run your routes. You don't adapt based off of what they tell you. No, because the whole idea is protection. And in fact, that scene where there's that shootout and um, they get stuck there, we say you have to get off the X. So what happened is they got stuck. They got stuck on the X. That's the most dangerous situation you can ever be in. The most dangerous moment of a protectee 
or any individual really for that matter, is moments when you arrive and you depart. That's where you're the most vulnerable and exposed. So that's the last place where I'm going to have somebody tell me what route I'm going to take. And my routes, I would run them, time them, write them out. I was in New York City when I started as an agent, so we've got tons of traffic. I'd wake up at 5 a.m., I'd run my routes, memorize them. And there was no using your phone, GPS, no, no. You have to have your primary route, how are you going to get there, a secondary backup route. Then you have to have the route to the hospital memorized for w- what location you're at. And that changes as you move. I had to memorize my safe house route, which was things break bad. Where am I going to hunker down? And you had to have those all up here. And you had to know how to get everywhere depending on where you were on the route. So no, no one's telling me what route I'm going to take. Jed's writing all this down, by the way. It's great to hear. The real world is the way it is for a reason. And as a writer, you do well to study the real world because it brings a, a, a kind of logic and plausibility. People who've been doing the job that Evie does for years, for decades, will know far more about these scenarios than I would just being some random guy who sits at his computer trying to make it up. Evie, you said some of your colleagues have had a bit of kickback, maybe from their protectee, and there can be a clash there. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you have to protect somebody and actually rather like David Budd in, in Bodyguard, it's a character who you don't instinctively, you don't warm to. Their politics might be different. Um, in the case of Budd, he's come back from Afghanistan. He's protection officer to a home secretary who's unapologetic about sending British soldiers to war. So there's a there's space for conflict there. How do you how do you deal with somebody who is under your protection who you don't empathize with or don't sympathize with? Is that a difficult thing to process? No. Everyone assumes you just protect the president. In the United States, Secret Service protects the current president, the first family, cabinet members, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Homeland Security, the first lady, the vice president. Then you're also protecting simultaneously all the former presidents, all the former first ladies, and then foreign heads of state. So when the prime minister, let's say, of the United Kingdom comes to the United States, we work with the protection services and we protect them because in the United States, we don't want anybody getting assassinated on U.S. soil. So as a result, I've probably protected a third of the leaders in the world because they would come to the U.S. So we're doing so much protection and you're, you're protecting people, you know, heads of state from other countries. The first time I heard of Djibouti, I was like, what's Djibouti? And I said, it's a country. I didn't know. So you don't make it about you. It's never about you. That job is about the meaning, the mission, preserving human life and what it means in the big scheme of things if somebody gets killed on your watch. And we used to always say, never on my watch, Mm. never on my watch. Let's get into some of those presidents because you've looked after, I think, four of them and each will have their own characteristics, their own traits. Bill Clinton, for example, was very friendly. He loved people, didn't he? And if you're looking after a president... And what he likes most of all is to meet people as many as possible and spend time with them. Presumably, that makes your life kind of difficult. Did you find that with with Clinton in particular? You know what? No, because I didn't have him as my primary detail. He was his detail in the former first lady, Hillary Clinton. Like I would help with that. And I got hired towards the tail end of his administration. So I had him mostly as a former president. I would have him a lot. And then the Bushes I would have while they were in office. And then with President Barack Obama, that's when... I was assigned to somebody 24-7. All my other duties went away. And it's like, this is all you do, eat, breathe, and that. I think the most challenging ones, 
not challenging, the trickiest one probably that I had, I was in charge of President Bush's daughter, one of his twin daughters. And that's something that is unique because you want them to live their life and you want to give them flexibility. Um, and they want to hang out, they want to go out, they want to live life, but then you're also protecting them. And so I think that was a very unique thing where certain things I would do with everyone else, I would ha I would do differently there. And so you'd have to strike a balance. How do you travel overseas with someone like that? How do you allow them to have that space? I was very fortunate. I had a great relationship with my protectee, which was Barbara. You know, but I, I, I did see in other situations where other agents would struggle with the people we're protecting with because you want to be very rigid and it's hard. You can't be. So you have to find that balance. It's almost like a negotiation. How about <laughs> we go out at this time? If you come home by this time, what do you think? You know, and that would happen when we went to Africa, we went to Tanzania and she was visiting all these um, medical facilities that were helping, you know, with getting medication to people with HIV. And I don't want to be at the, on the roads at night. Um, I'd gotten Intel to stay off the roads at night. There were road pirates and she would kind of do her schedule. And I, I went to her room. I'm like, we're going to do a deal. I'm like, what else do you want to do? How can we make this happen? But we're not driving at night. But I'll give you anything else you want. And so you kind of broker deals with your protectees. It's a negotiation. They, they have to be out there. If it's the president of the United States, he has to shake hands. They want to be with people, touch people. They're in public mm -hmm. office and you would just want to take them and lock them up. <laughs> you know, you always just try to like stay fit because you're doing activities with them and you're wearing your gear, which makes it heavier. And then at the same time, you have to be strong enough and have enough endurance in you to that after you're done hiking, if something happens that you can carry that person, remove that person. So physical fitness was a big thing on the job. In fact, they would test us repeatedly and you had to always kind of be on it. Like you couldn't, you know, that's why I was like earlier on, I was like, oh, Big Mac heaven. Like you really had to maintain your body, your body was your job. Yeah. Something you spoke about earlier is really interesting to get back to is it about reading people. And, you know, you both do that in different ways. You both have to study people carefully and question their motives, whether it's working out why somebody is approaching the president or exploring how one of your characters would react in a situation. You talk about this in your book, and I've seen you do a TED talk about it, Evie, um, about how to read people and gather information from them. Is there an easy route into gaining mm, people's trust? How you gain people's trust. It's interesting because that's why I think I love the character of Nadia Judd because you made her a woman, you made her this. Nobody saw it coming. They didn't even look at her. But in the agency, we had maybe 30 polygraph examiners are called polygraph examiners. And I actually think in the UK, polygraphs are illegal. You don't do them in the UK. No, they don't have a good reputation here. Yeah. Um, but I was trained to be one, but we had a unit and it's really the polygraph is not the test. Polygraph's the person. That's the real lie detector. So we had a small unit, about 30, and it was a very elite unit. And they asked me, would you like to be part of it? And I was just like, no, what are you crazy? Who's going to talk to me? You need big, bald, and scary. <laughs> and I'm none of those things. And it was like, no, they're never going to see you coming. And people are going to be open with you and want to talk to you and more engaged with you. And that actually turned out to be, I guess, my superpower when I began doing interviews and interrogations. When I say in interviews and interrogations, we're talking about ethical stuff, above board, talking to people. You can't force people to give you information. They're going to give you garbage too, just to get you to leave them alone. But if you can gain trust and be genuine, you have to like find this balance of being authentic, being honest, because lying in the room like destroys your credibility. You have to manage to be, do all those things and still engage someone to talk to you. It's not easy. I used to say to people, I'm like, I, I sell jail. 
you talk to me, you have the potential to go to jail or prison. So when people ask me for tips, I'm like, hey, if I can sell jail, you can sell anything. <laughs> it's really about paying attention to the person. And so sometimes I'll hear people sell this like very gimmicky kind of like shallow stuff. Like, oh, if somebody looks up into the left, it means that this is part of the brain that works and then they're lying. And none of that's true. The, the human beings are we're so complex. We're, we're made up of our, our DNA, uh, the way we're brought up our school, our education, the trauma experience, you're, you're, you're this unique, unique thing. So to categorize and simplify people to be like, everybody does this when this happens is bullshit. <laughs> the key thing is reading that person. So if I'm spending time with that person, I'm going to watch them. I'm going to watch their mannerisms. I'm going to talk to them. I'm watching them in that moment. And then I'm like, oh, this is how Rory is when he's just relaxed, when he's talking. And then I pick up those little things that you do. Maybe you lean back in your chair when you like something I say, which you kind of just did, and you've done it a couple of times during this interview. So I'm like, oh, okay, he liked what I said, because those are those moments where you give me something. Jad's like stoic. You know, you see very little. Very still. But you can see that he has a genuine smile because the corner of his eyes crinkle when we smile. So he's smiling with his whole face. <laughs> and so those are the little key things that you pick up in different people. So the number one tip I can give is that we are so self involved. We're so about ourselves. We're so ego driven. We're so worried about what am I going to say? What am I going to do? What does this person think of me? The number one thing to being a good reader is to stop thinking about yourself and really look at the human being across from you. And they're going to show you everything about them. And that's how you figure out motives, values, what they think, what they feel. And the best part, the number one thing I tell people is shut up and let people talk, ask them questions, talk to them, and they're going to expose themselves to you. And then you come in in a more intelligent way and you ask questions, you gain trust, you build rapport. And rapport, it's not something you do in the beginning of a conversation. It's something you do throughout. And I will give major props to the United Kingdom. A lot of the interviewing techniques and strategies that I was trained in, it's the UK. Britain by far crushes it when it comes to interviewing skills, research. They're very, very good. Very good. There's also an extraordinary story in your book where you're brought in in a case where a child has been abused and they brought in, first of all, they pointed the finger at the babysitter and the husband and both of those were brought in. And I think the polygraphs came up, so they said they, 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 were, they were telling the truth. And you said, bring in the mother. And they said, no, no, no. Well, like we were talking about before, because people didn't suspect the mother. But you said, bring her in. And what happened? The focus of the investigation was on the dad. And on the nanny, right? Because it's not the mom. The mom's the one who's complaining. The mom's the one who's like, oh my God, my child. And I was just like, give me the mom. And she was, so there was a lot of indicators in the room that I could tell that there was a problem. One, she showed up with an attorney, which she is allowed to do. But what was interesting is that when her husband came in from his polygraph, he didn't have one. He came in, okay, hi guys, I'm here to help. What can I do? And then he's an extension of her. She's an extension of him. And she came with an attorney. So that was one thing that seemed off to me. The other thing was, I'm busy. How long is this going to take? I don't have time for this. And so in that moment, I'm like, I almost knew as soon as she started doing that, I'm like, we've got a problem. I think it's her. Because if it's my kid, this happens to my child, I'm going to invest time. What do you need? What can I share with you? She wanted nothing to do with me. She was very cold with me in the room. And it was just more of an interviewing and assessment, asking her questions. And from the beginning to the end, this is a person who put up major resistance. And so that was another red flag for me. I was like, 
Why would you not want to help? Why are you so antagonistic? Why do you want to leave the room? And sure enough, she she failed the polygraph. And she was also very, another thing, she was very short and um, brief with her answers. Like she didn't explain. I'd say, could you explain this to me? Which were very open-ended questions. Explain to me how you found out your child, you know, had a broken arm. And it was very brief, very little detail. When people lie, they don't want to give a lot of detail. Lying is a lot of work. Lying is hard work. You got to remember everything. You got to create it. You're creating it in your mind. You know, another indication too, there were moments where she was telling me stories. When I would say to her, tell me how you found your child this way or how you discovered this way. As she's recalling the past, because she was lying to me in the interview, she would switch from using past tense verbs or I found, I did, I went to those moments where she was lying. She would switch to present tense because what she was doing is she's creating the lie in her mind. And so because she's thinking in the present, she would switch and use present verb tenses. So that was another thing I paid attention to. Jed, when you're writing those interview sequences, have you spoken to forensic psychologists like Evie, or are you writing instinctively as a dramatist? I'm just writing as a person, and my, my experience of talking to liars is exactly the same as Evie's. Firstly, lying's hard work. If you're going to lie, invent as little as possible. So the nearer to what the truth is, you, your story is, then the better chance you have of convincing anyone. Also, it's about what kind of person they are. People who choose to do a lot of lying are probably tending towards having personality disorders or the, the sociopaths, and they signal it. You know, you're around a sociopath for five minutes, you're going to know it. Really, in the interviews that, that I do, it's actually probably a bit of a departure from the reality because I tend to, to make it very hard for the audience to detect that someone's lying. Particularly in Line of Duty, the characters aren't sociopaths who are lying. They're actually people who are morally conflicted and that they're, they're trying to justify their wrongdoing on some kind of moral level that has to work for roughly 50% of the audience. That they're, they're doing bad things, but for good reasons. And so that that creates a kind of emotional intensity for them that, that can be quite convincing. You know, I, I, I think that what, what is interesting is when we're, we, we all see interviews that are in the public domain. I, I don't know, Evie, if you do this, but when you, when you watch a public figure being interviewed, someone who's been accused of wrongdoing, it's fascinating. It's great because you can replay it and you can, you can, it's not the same as being in the room and you've obviously had that experience, but I, I find those things very illuminating. Mm. Evie, the world is just so dramatic as well. There are conspiracy theories back and forth, you know, the QAnon conspiracy. As a trained security agent, when you hear that this conspiracy is going on, Pizzagate, a paedophile ring in the, in the Democratic Party, and that people are believing this, has your world changed in the, in the light of this sort of thing that's been happening in the last five years or so? Even when I worked in government, I'd always hear cons conspiracy theories. Oh, you know what they're doing in there? And there were things, sometimes there were things that I, because you're with the president, and I knew exactly what he was doing or what was happening in the White House, and people would, I would hear these stories. So I think conspiracies have always been around. I think they're just a bit more amplified now because because of social media, anybody can have a voice and anybody can say what they want to say and mm. disinformation spreads. I think they've always been around. It's just everybody now has a voice. And I think that's the issue. I can't do your uh, brilliant impressions, Rory. So I won't even try. But I heard that on his first day as president, Clinton asked, OK, now I'm president. Can you tell me who killed JFK? 
And are UFOs real? <laughs> I heard that when Trump was elected president in November, the first person to call him, it's usually the British prime minister, but it was the president of Egypt, LCC, rang Trump Tower. It was very enterprising. He rang Trump Tower. They put it through to his suite and he's in there with his advisors. And they say, oh, it's Trump. It's the president of Egypt on the phone. And apparently his first words, Trump's first words to a foreign leader, was the president of Egypt. He picked up the phone and said, I love the bangles. I love the bangles. You know, that song works like an Egyptian. I'd love to know if that was true, because that's kind of where it started. When you've got a president like Trump, I mean, extraordinary disruptor. What does it do to the whole apparatus of the Secret Service if you have a president who is was constantly undermining, criticizing the FBI. He would contradict his security advisor. Do you just have to carry on regardless? Does it affect the morale of the Secret Service if you if you have a, a president who is acting in that way? I think it can just make it hard sometimes, I think from a security perspective, because you're thinking, don't do these things, don't say these things, because maybe it makes our job harder. Do you want to like the person you protect? Sure. But I think you get so used to just separating the two. And I never participated in a political conversation with my colleagues. I just, you're so busy and the job's so intense, you don't really get pulled into it. And in fact, we never shared who we voted for, if we voted, our preferences, because the idea was if you do that, you're giving an inside peek to the world. That's not why we're there. Because then the person you're trying to keep safe won't want you around if they feel betrayed, if they feel that you don't like them, like that. now you can't do your job. And that's really, that's the thing where that comes in again. It's like, you are not there for you. You are not there for what you politically think or feel. You are there to do your job. Mm -hmm. Jed, do you see looking back at the world as it's been, I, I sometimes think we are living in a box set. Are you inspired by this world? Are there plot lines left, right and centre? Or are you a little bit like me as a comedian? You think I can't, I give up. I give, I cannot outdo this. Yeah, it, it's a strange situation. I think that when I wrote Bodyguard, I felt that there was a stable political scenario to write about, particularly with respect to national security. I didn't write about Brexit because it was a fast-changing situation, but I think we are now in a different political environment and national security issues are a little bit less stable than they were because of disinformation. And, and that's very worrying for those of us who care about national security. I would also say that the way in which politicians behave now seems to have changed. They are prepared to be more unpredictable and, and to do things that and say things that, that take you by surprise. That's another world to explore another day. And it's a world that future agents are going to have to get their heads around. But I've just really enjoyed listening to you, Evie and, and, and Jed. Thank you so much for coming on The Spying Game and telling us about your experiences. Thank you so much, Rory. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Rory. Next time on Spyscapes, The Spying Game... Rory is joined by former jihad supporter turned counter-terrorism operative Mubin Sheikh and American spy author and television writer Lauren Wilkinson. Momin Kowaja was arrested in the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot. Momin Kowaja sat to my left in the Korhan school we went to as a kid. I remember playing Hot Wheels cars with him. You're given this promise, you're told, you know, to be indoctrinated into anything. You're told this is it, this is black and white. These people are wrong, these people are evil because of how they behave, but 
the more you get into anything, the more you realize how false that is and that it is a tool for, you know, getting people on side. The FBI, you know, this summer after George Floyd's death, they've been keeping tabs on Black Lives Matter leadership. You know, there are a lot of cycles in all of these things. So when I was writing about Marie, I didn't have to stretch my imagination that far. I mean, I just don't think to myself, if this was another kind of conservative family and it was a girl who did that, she'd probably be killed for it. The Spying Game is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen to episodes a week early ad-free by subscribing to Spyscape Plus on Apple Podcasts. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.